Today on Tune FM, we're sitting down to talk to Dr. Lucas Carey, a researcher with UNE who looks at lived experience in criminology and the importance of it in policymaking and enforcement. Lucas recently published a study together with colleagues Dr. Carolyn Doyle from the University of New South Wales and Joanna Sui from ANU, which found that better use of technology within the Australian prison system can help to support families within the criminal justice system and facilitate an easier transition back into society. So thanks for coming on the show today, Lucas, and talking to us. Ash, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's great that we get to have a yarn about a topic that affects more people than is actually uh, is actually known. Yeah. So for those of our listeners who don't know, what does lived experience mean? So lived experience and, and living experience is really important, as is language when we're talking about uh, in, in this space. Is we have a lot of previously and currently incarcerated people that 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 we work with and and collaborate with, and there, there's an idea called labeling theory. And labeling theory labeling theory is where if someone is told or called something over a long period of time, that becomes their master status. So what happens for argument's sake is when we're growing up, if we're called stupid, we're called fat, we're called something, that thing sticks and that thing sticks and stays. And some of the words that are used to describe and talk about the justice system doesn't reflect the fact that the people we're talking about are humans. So lived and living experience means something almost like a phenomena that someone has experienced or is experiencing. So the idea of being incarcerated doesn't stop the second you walk out the door. That stuff continues with you in some way, shape or form as you continue into the remainder of your life. It's just how you manage that. So the words like convicts, you know, druggy, um, you know, junkie, these type of words that are part of our sort of, you know, our normal lexicon can be really offensive and really dehumanizing to some people. So I appreciate you using that, uh, using that language when we started the discussion. So it's the difference of, say, using an incarcerated person instead of a prisoner or an inmate to bring back that humanity that they have. Absolutely. And, and you know, talking about terms like, you know, th- th- these are human beings that have made a mistake, you know. And again, I'm not, I'm not I'm trying to, you know, to go soft and, and, and say that crime's okay, but we're talking about people that are making mistakes or bad decisions. And there's often reasons, rationale and context, Ash, behind why some of these mistakes or some of these things are taking place. And if we use these dehumanizing language, sometimes we go away from that. And I think we see it a lot in within this system as well. It's it's something that's continually used, and especially in the media, because the media perpetuates it by continuing to use this sort of language. So how can we in the media change our use of language? What terms should we be using to not negatively influence people's perceptions of those who are within the criminal justice system? The timing on this is perfect, Ash. I, I literally have just finished a tutorial talking about the role of the media in the reporting of crime, and we talked about um, you know some of the some of the ways that certain groups can be perpetuated via media discussions in regards to crime. Is that there's there's often um, that the, the white missing woman um, complex where you know if there's if there's someone that is a, a grandparent, a child, or a white woman that's missing, the way that that can be perpetrated and shown in the media can often be challenging, um, and it can be challenging for people, specifically specific groups of people. So we use an example in our tutorial before um, of a young West Australian lady, a girl that was um, abducted, um, and the media, um, in their own wisdom, showed someone that they believed to be the person that had actually taken that young person, and it wasn't even them. It was completely the wrong person. So that man's 
life. I'm not going to say he's ruined, but he's got some uh, he's got some challenges and some demons that he continues to face now because he was effectively wrongly identified. The media can be fantastic in the way that crime can be reported if it's reported um, unbiasedly um, and also in a space and place where we talk about humans. There's not only the victims of crime or the survivors of crime that are humans, but the people that perpetrate, the people that are the ones that have made these mistakes are humans also. So it's really important that, yes, often reporting in a humanistic way in the media doesn't get clicks and doesn't sell, but what it does do is it actually makes this humanistic and it allows that person a greater opportunity to own their own narrative or to see their own narrative when they return back to the community post-incarceration. And it's not just people who are within the criminal justice system who are affected, is it? It's their families, their loved ones, their friends. This stuff follows them as well. 100%. And and this is something that we, we picked up in our study. And, and, and Joanne, um, our, our colleague um, in this piece of research, was on a placement at, at Australian National University. And she saw this. And she saw that the way that men and women were incarcerated, not only had the influence of sentencing them, but had the influence of effectively sentencing their children and their families and their partners as well. And often that flow on crime, that flow on from those actions negatively affected the children in much, much bigger ways than, than were originally thought. And we're talking here about um, that there's an ideal called adverse childhood experiences. And one of the adverse childhood experiences is an incarcerated or missing parent. And effectively, we're talking here of, of, of a parent missing. Yes, through their own actions, they have made a mistake not being soft on crime, and I've said that before, but understanding that, yes, they're incarcerated, but the silent victims of this are the kids. You know, They're trying to work out why mum or dad's disappeared, why mum or dad can't talk to them every day, why they can't hug mum or dad when they go and see them why they don't get the chance to, you know, to, to, to engage with them on a, on a daily thing because we're dealing with adult concepts. And Joanne, Dr. Doyle and myself looked at this and thought that the use of technology can assist this. It can break down some of those barriers. It can actually allow that connectivity to take place all through some really small mindset changes. Yeah, because in your research, Lucas, you were talking about things like, you know, using FaceTime or in-cell tablets to be able to give these people access to their families when they want it to. You know, why is it that that's not currently being done? Well, it, it, it's partly a mindset change. So there's some areas that the technology exists. So in New South Wales, uh, Brett Collins from the, the, the Justice Abroad Action Group has worked extraordinarily hard with the New South Wales government to get tablets um, into the large majority of cells throughout New South Wales prisons. So that's the first step. Fantastic. Access to technology is the number one. But the second part is, and this is where it gets a little bit real, Ash, is I spend some time myself uh, in prison and that's why I do what I do. And that's why I work in the space because we want to try and make people not to have to go through that experience that, that I went through myself. And that's that lived and living experience. But one of the most vulnerable times and vulnerable spaces in a place where vulnerability is not okay, vulnerability is not safe in prison, where one of the times where you are the least vulnerable is when you are speaking to or have just finished speaking to your children. The large majority of the, the guys that I had served my time with were strongly connected to their children. And when you're in a vulnerable space, 
myself included, and some of the biggest, strongest people that you could ever imagine, get off the phone after talking to their children and are in tears, are in traumatic, um, you know, crisis mode where they are shattered. And the amount of times after that, you know, between six and seven o'clock at night when the, the phones are open or four or five, depending upon the prison you're in, it is a rush to get to the phones. You get to see and speak to your children for anywhere from five to 10 minutes, depending upon the prison you're in. And that is the hardest five to 10 minutes of your day. And in some instances of your life, because you are literally hearing about things that take place and things that are happening to your young person in a quick speed area when you are 30 centimeters away from someone else on the next phone doing exactly the same thing. The trauma exists not only for yourself and the vulnerability appears for yourself, but also for your children because kids are pretty good at picking this stuff up, Ash, and pretty kids are pretty easy to know when dad's upset or when mum's upset. And then that flow-on effect goes to partners as well because they've then, they're at home or, or, or grandparents or whoever's looking after the young kids. They've got to then explain that and they've got to then go through the process of having that discussion with them. So the idea to have tablets or, and, and have access to technology in, this sounds really perverse to say, but the safest place for a lot of people in prison is their cell. And to have that inside their cell when that, that is them, they can speak to, they can engage with at the times that suit family is is the best way possible. And it gives them somewhere private to have those discussions as well. I imagine there's a lot of things that you don't want to or can't get into because there is those other guys on either side of you. You don't have your own private space. And that I think is one of the most important things for a person to have. And and for both, Ash, and, and um, you know, we, we, we're talking about, there'll be some of your listeners, there'll be some of your listeners and people who pick this up that are like saying, well, they're in prison. It's not party time. So we're not we're not talking about this here as in a, a celebration. Let's go, you know, woohoo! We're talking to everyone in the world. We're exclusively talking to the people that need us the most, mm. and that is our kids. Mistakes have been made. Serving time for those mistakes. The reality is, is your kids are still your kids, and you know the the research suggests that that missing parent idea or that incarcerated parent idea can go can go a long way towards influencing further criminological behaviors by kids um, down the track if those things aren't resolved. So I, I can I can still see, Ash, in, in, in my mind, and I can still see it, is that, that the prison where I served my time at, the main, there was a small dam, and the dam was just a little bit down the hill and away. And after phone calls were made, you know, 6 o'clock at night, 6.30, 7 o'clock, there'd be 20 guys sitting around these things separately with their heads in their hand crying their eyes out because of the conversations they've just had with their parents or with their, with their kids. And you imagine then what that looks like on the other side is that the kids who have just spoken to their dad or have just spoken to mum and where they're at. And I know the stress that that put on my partner as well because the times when I was allocated to ring, I was from living in Western Australia and served time in Victoria and that was a three-hour time difference. So the time slot for me that I could ring was 6 p.m., that's 3 p.m. for school-age kids at home. Now, for anyone that's a parent that's listening, that's the start of the witching hour. Yep. Right? That's feeding, bathing, unpacking lunch boxes, getting homework done, all the craziness that's in it. So it actually became a detraction for dad calling at that time because I was blowing up the day-to-day -day activities that were happening during there and not letting the kids get into 
their habit and pattern that they would be following normally. So it actually became a negative for some of the instances for my partner for me to ring. And that's the worst thing we want to happen. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of things, you know, online on TikTok, on Instagram from people who have returned to society. And it's not just about having access to your family, which is a massively important thing, but it also has benefits for those who have served a longer time. You know, they went in in the early 90s. Suddenly there's all this technology that is completely alien to them. They don't know how to use a smartphone. They don't really know how to navigate the computers these days. And having newer technology helps that as well, right? 100%. It is one yeah. of the guys that we do a lot of work with. I work as a manager of reintegration in my full-time job um, and then work sessionally with, with, with UNE. And one of the guys came home after a 25-year stint. And the, <laughs> and I laugh at this. He rang me from standing in, um, standing in the checkout at, at, at one of the major supermarket chains and rang me up and he's like, Lucas, I'm a, I'm a crook. I've just got out of prison and there's no one here. What the hell is this self-serve checkout? They're trusting me to scan stuff and get out of here. Come on, man. What's this about? As he was ringing me from his 1997 flip phone, because he didn't know what a smartphone is and Mm -hmm. how to engage with a lot of those things. So I, I smile and chuckle about that in a flippant way, but the reality is true is that for the longer term or the lifers that we would are referred to often for sort of 10, 12 years plus is those guys' technology changes. For a person that served a year or two years, okay, what's the biggest change? There's an iPhone 12 instead of an 11. Yeah, let's, let's be honest about that. But for the longer guys that come through, they've got internet. Some of them have seen internet. Some of these guys... Some of these guys and girls coming home have not engaged with smartphones, don't understand MyGov, don't understand all of these, you know, Netflix and, and on on demand television, all these things that we take for, for granted every day. So not only does this technology allow for that to take place, but it goes back to the original point of making sure that the people coming home are connected to family. Because Ashton, this is a really simplistic idea. You don't know. No one in this room knows that their next door neighbor isn't someone that's coming home from prison. So personally, I'd prefer a person coming home to re-enter into my community, to be in a space and place where they are balanced, to be in a space and place where they have connectivity to their families, and they can come back and peel into the space and be as, uh, you know, be as easily reintegrated as possible. And then the same for their kids, is that the kids know that they have got the space and place to engage with their parents because that's what's missing because the parent needs the kids as much as the kid needs the parents while they're incarcerated. Especially also, Ash, in some states, parole actually looks at your engagement with family. So they'll look at how many visits you've had. They'll look at how many phone call activities you've made to see if you're going back to a, um, you know, to a family unit. And if you don't have the ability to do that, then there's a challenge. And the last part, Ash, on this thing is cost. And cost is prohibitive for people that are in prison. Is A lot of your listeners don't know is you've got to pay for your phone calls. And your phone calls are generally, depending upon who you're in and where you're in, can be anywhere upward of $1.25 a minute. Now, if you think about this for a second, okay? So we're making, you know, if you're working a job, a base job, cleaning job, et cetera, you might be making $25 to $28 a week. Okay, you've still got to pay for deodorant. That even though you're doing all that work and you are paying for 
the stuff that you're dealing with is that you still then on top of that need to pay for phone calls. Now, there are some people that flatly, flatly couldn't afford it. Now, I was ringing from Victoria uh, from Victoria to Perth, so I was on mobile rates. So for me, I, t- I had to find three jobs when I was in prison just to be able to speak to my kids three times a week. You do the sums. 10-minute calls times three, that's 30. I was spending about $35, $36 a week on phone calls and was making $40 a week in prison. I think that's the uh, one of the other big issues is that is then contributing to the dehumanization, which is it's the ma- the biggest thing in that system that we have in place. And it's not like that in other countries. You know, you look at places in Scandinavia, you know, Sweden, Norway, Finland, they have, you know, prisons that are more akin to closed apartments. You know, you've got your own private space, you've got a bed, you've got all of this stuff that you can do. And, you know, some prisons have different activities. You know, I think I saw a thing about um, an animal project where guys would come in, they would get cleared, they would work with foster animals to then help those animals. And that forge a real connection with them. And that, I think, is really helpful because it's not disconnecting them from society. So how does that compare to what we have in our system in Australia? Well, that, that animal program does exist in certain prisons and it does, and it does exist and it does exist well. And we've seen it in a lot of places that, that some of those animals really can soften and allow for people that aren't getting human touch or aren't getting you know, involvement in affection to actually be able to work and, and to keep those things going. But the bigger point is, um, is, is your other point about international places. And we talk about justice reinvestment. And justice reinvestment is, is again, a mindset change where we are spending, as, as an Australian taxpayer, billions of dollars, and that is billions with a B, billions of dollars on incarcerating people and putting people into, into prisons. Now, let's, let's not pretend here for a second, Ash, is we've had this same problem for hundreds of years and it's not changing. So what's got to change is our mindset towards mm. how we're doing this. Now, some of the European countries and even some of the US countries, funnily, some of the US states, funnily enough, you know, one of the, one of the, 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 the true red states in the US, Texas, is, is, is working very hard with justice reform to attempt to close their prisons and are closing their prisons and are working out other ways to get people back into the community rather than locking them in a box. Depending upon where and the age of the people, it can cost up to nearly a million dollars a year to imprison someone. Mm. If it's a young person, it's more because of the additional services and staff that are required. But if we looked at taking a proportion of what this looks like and changing, because effectively as jailing is failing, yeah, is that it's not working at the moment. I, I can't find a person in the world that says that it is working, it's perfect because rates continue to rise. Our prisons are full. They're full because the system's not working. The system's broken. And this is one of the the simple things that we can see as a mindset change that might break this cycle early. It might keep someone linked to family. It might keep a young person linked to a father or a mother that might effectively and potentially break the cycle for them moving forward. So the goal shouldn't be punishment as it is now. It should be reintegration and rehabilitation. Again, I don't want to say that I'm being soft on crime because I'm mm. not. There's some 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 things that occur that there is an element of you know that needing to be done. But 
these people are human beings. These people have made mistakes. And, and, and I challenge all of your listeners and I challenge anyone to think about a time that they've made a mistake or think about a time where they have needed a second or third or fifth or 15th chance. And that could be in any aspect of their life is the person has made a mistake or made a series of mistakes. And if we work to assist with looking at the contributing factors to where those mistakes came from, then what we're effectively doing is deleting the opportunities for them to take place down the track again. So it reduces recidivism, which will then take away a large proportion of the people who remain in the cycle of imprisonment. So other than technology, what else can we be doing? An actual physical, real change to change this mindset that is embedded in, you know, a lot of people's minds it's a great question, and it's it's one of those crystal balls is that yeah you know, we'd love to look at, but again that justice reinvestment idea is jailing is failing is mm. you know making sure here that we're understanding that there is alternative ways to look at these things. Is there is alternative ways to deal with the cause the causal nature of what's happening? So making sure that we're understanding and seeing that um, the one spot that we're understanding is it's not just the person. Well, it's not sorry. It's not just the action that the person's undertaken. It's a person that has undertaken an action. So let's look at the person and what's there. If we've got some people that may be drug, drug and alcohol related, they may be mental health challenged. There may be other things such as abuse, trauma, these other types of things that are behind it. Instead of just dealing with the action, let's deal with the root cause. Let's try and assist that person in dealing with their underlying trauma. Let's deal with someone that's potentially having those mental health challenges. And this technology is a step in that because what we're doing here is we're keeping the person that's in, that's incarcerated linked to their families to reduce another level of trauma, to reduce another level of that departure and feeling isolated. Because I can tell you from experience, Ash, is being imprisoned is not a nice thing. Being imprisoned is an isolating instance where all you want to do at some point in time is read your, read your kid a book. You want, you want your young fella or your young daughter to give you a hug. You want to be able to be a human and have that human touch and have that human engagement. And unfortunately, the current system doesn't allow that. Mm. And it's something that really does need to change. Where can people learn more about this? You know, Do you have places that you post other stuff, um, more research coming out, just somewhere that people can educate themselves on this matter for those who do want to learn more? There's a couple of places, first of all, is, is you know, obviously through the University of New England, we do a lot of work in this area, a lot of research in this space, and, and um, I I'm, can't, can't say enough about how lucky we are to have, you know, the University of New England accepting and embracing um, a previously incarcerated academic that brings in this lived experience idea and is able to provide a balanced approach to some of the research we're doing. And, you know, that, 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 that University of New England space and place compared also linked to a couple of other universities in Australia are doing some great work in that area. So that's the first part. The second part is a, is a group called the Justice Reform Initiative. And that's, that is a group that, um, that I'm not an official member or part of, but they do a lot of work in regards to justice alternatives. And then there's another group around Australia, especially here in WA, called the Just, Justice Reinvestment Western Australia and, and, and Social Reinvestment. And if you look up any of those topics in, in, in Google or Google Scholar, we'll give you a really good update as to what is being done, what can be done, and what needs to be done to make this a humanistic approach. Because as we said, jailing in this current form is failing and has been doing so for hundreds of years. 
We just need to make a mindset change. And slowly in some places, Ash, it's coming. But in a lot of other places, we're still very archaic and very you know, infantile with our thinking in regards to humans being humans. Thank you so much for coming on today, Lucas. And thanks for sharing this information and your story, because I think it's very important for people to know what it means and to actually have that story and be able to put a person to it rather than thinking of them as just someone who's out there that I've never met. You know, they, it's all part of rehumanizing, I suppose. Absolutely, Ashen. As I said before, is you know, you don't know. You don't know and, and, and you don't know who has and who hasn't been incarcerated or involved in the justice system. They might be the coach of your son's sporting team. They might be you know, a friend of your, your, your kid's friend's mother or father. So the way for me is if you can reduce the trauma through ensuring that they still continue to have access to their kids, vice versa, is that you may actually be getting a re- easing reintegration and making sure that you know that that person is being rehabilitated rather than punished when they return. Um, or or, or assisted in their re-entry. Thank you so much, Lucas. Thanks, Ash.